Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tom and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode, we visit Madrid, the capital of Spain. We explain the unexpectedly controversial history of Spanish omelette. Learn why Madrid's famous stew, cocido, originally had no pork, but today can have up to eight or nine cuts of pork in each dish. Plus, flamenco meets old cuisine. We taste food from a Michelin-star chef while watching Spain's most emotive dancing style. Hello, everyone. We're back again with another episode of The Dish. Yes. Where in the world are we going to be eating today? What in the world are we going to be eating today? Well, if you actually read the headline of this podcast, you'd already know. <laughs> you probably do already know the information. At least some of the information is in there because we are going to Madrid, the capital of Spain. It's been the capital of Spain continuously since the year 1606, so it has been doing some capitalization for quite a while. Mm. And I was pleasantly surprised with Madrid. This is the very first time I had been there, and I kind of expected it to have a bit of a, I don't know, just a little bit more of like a busier capital city kind of vibe to it. But it was very chill, very relaxed, beautiful architecture, lovely little place to visit. Yeah. Obviously, it's still a massive city, so there's traffic oh, and stuff. Oh, it's huge. But, but yeah, it was surprisingly a lot calmer than I thought the capital of Spain would be. Yeah, so, it was very chill. Yeah, so that was cool. That was really good. And obviously, before we get started with this episode, do remember to rate the show or subscribe to the show if you've listened to us before and you've never left us a review. Go do that now. Five stars is the correct number for that one. And um, if you are new to the show, well, keep listening. But also, you can hit that subscribe button anytime when you realize that you're enjoying the show. If you're not enjoying the show, that's all right, too. Uh, but we're going to try and make it enjoyable for you. Yeah. 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 So that'll be good. All right. So... We are talking about Madrid in Spain. Yes, located right in the heart of the Iberian Peninsula, which is the little sticky out bit at Southwest Europe, including Portugal and Spain, pretty much. So I don't know why they came up with a special name for that area. Maybe it's, it predates Portugal and Spain as countries or something, perhaps. I have no yeah. idea. So I'm like, it's only two countries. And you've just gone, nope, we need a special name for two countries. Hmm. Sure, sure. Why not? Why not? Yeah. You know. What are you going to do? Um, all right. So I had extra budget for country naming yeah. that year. <laughs> the marketing department was like, ooh, all right, let's make this a little fancy by having extra name. If we don't use up name. our budget, then we're not going to get the same amount next year. Exactly. So we got to do something with this. Although, of course, the Iberian Peninsula, well, the one, the one very amazing word that has come out of that is Iberico ham. It's a very special type of hamon, of cured ham. Mm. We're not going to be talking about Iberico ham today because it's actually such a big topic. I'm going to be doing a special episode on ham at some point because there's loads of different hams. But yes, this is the world of wonderful ham, but it's also the world of lots of other very interesting dishes. And our number one dish today is cocido madrileño, the cocido of Madrid. Yeah. This is Spain's everything stew. This is where they just throw everything in a big pot of boiling water and they simmer it for hours and hours and hours. And it's the sort of thing that's probably been around since ancient times. But of course, it has evolved 
since then. And it's also appeared all over the world. So lots of different cultures have these different everything in one pot sort of boiling dishes. I mean, uh, it's not rocket science. It is not. It's quite an obvious form of cooking. You yeah. either barbecue stuff or you throw it in boiling water. These are two very old school styles of cooking. Uh, when we did our Cuba episode uh, a few months back, we talked about agiacho. I think that's how it's pronounced, or agiaco. Uh, it's a native dish that then has been converted by the Spanish once they got there. And it's actually the reason it was converted by the Spanish when they got there is they want it to resemble something a bit closer to their dish from home, which is casido. So it is, it's sort of like they took those elements of the casido, their way that they used to boil everything up. And they, when they went to Cuba, they went, well, you're doing this like us, but it's not quite the same. So we're going to throw some pork in there. <laughs> hey, which is what the Spanish did when they colonized places. They were like, hey, have some pork. Hey, you have a pork. Everybody gets pork. They are pork fans, hence the Iberico ham being amazing. Yep. So, yes, while this simple cooking style may be very similar to lots of different types of dishes around the world, the cocido madrileño has definitely got its own unique character. And although also the ingredients may vary for different types of cocido around Spain and in places, ex-colonies, the cocido madrileño specifically always has chickpeas. I think in the US they call them gabanzo beans, which is like the Italian word for chickpeas. Yeah. So just so we all know what we're talking about. It always features meat. There's lots of meat in it. Uh, traditionally, multiple forms of pork are going to get thrown in. The bones, just to give flavor, pork knuckle, bacon, other things that might go in, chorizo, some more pork, morcilla, which is the pork blood sausage. So lots of different types of pork. Uh, sometimes also chicken or veal or beef as well. So it is the everything, everything, whatever you got. But there's almost certainly going to be some pork in there somewhere. Unless you've got some crazy modern chicken-only version for non-meat eater, pork eaters, vegetarians or something. Vege- there is a vegetarian sh- version, but trust say, me, it's I not the same I can assure you the vegetarians are not eating the chicken version. No, 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 not the chicken version. But apparently there are... <laughs> you going, have you been turned? <laughs> You're now like, want the vegetarian? This is white meat. Yes, yeah, chicken. This, 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 this is vegetarian. Yeah, that's how right? they do it in Southeast Asia. Vegetarian means just not beef or pork. I know, yeah. You know, if it's like birds, that's fine. Birds aren't, they're vegetables. Yeah. Come on. What are you talking about? <laughs> practically a vegetable. I did see there was a vegetarian version of this dish when I was like looking through Facebook images of the dish and going yeah. around. And I'm like, it's got to really be the same dish, can it? It really can't. If there's, like, it's not going to no get the same flavor profile, but I'm sure no. it's a very tasty veggie dish. Yeah, I'm sure it is. So after boiling all of the chickpeas, meat and vegetables together, the stock is separated and it is then used in a separate pot with some Spanish noodles, which are normally these uh, sort of short, thin noodles. So like just a few inches long, not as long as spaghetti, not even close. And they make that into like a little noodle soup. And that's like the first course of the meal. Mm-hmm. So if you order casido, it's like... It's an entire experience. It's not just one little dish. Or traditionally not. You can try and order like just a small portion, but that would be weird. You could try. Yeah, not the traditional way to do it. And then the second course is going to be all of the chickpeas and vegetables separated from the meat. And then the third course is all the meat. Although sometimes that second and third course might come together. So you just got a starter and then everything. Yeah. So yeah, it's like this. Uh, it's not just about what's in the dish. It, it's also been about how the dish is served. That makes this a, a very specific way that they do casido and i think they do that with casido all over the place as well it's not just the madrid version but the madrid version is particularly famous so originally of course this was a home-cooked meal but now because it's crazy busy life 
people actually want to get it when they go to a restaurant because no one got time to be making casita for eight hours at home. Nah. No one's got time for that. That's got a lot of stirring to be done. It is a super hearty dish as well. So there's a lot of food going on in there, particularly popular in winter, of course, because it's so hearty. And apparently, and I, we didn't find this when we were there, but apparently this is the case. If you go on a Thursday, that's the day when a lot of restaurants will have it as their menu del dia, their menu of the day. So they'll do a big casido for the whole restaurant. And when they're out, they're out. In that case, you might not have to get a portion that's quite as ridiculous as if you order a casido to yourself, which apparently, well, recommendations from a lot of people, if you're going to actually go and do the whole casido, it's like don't have less than four people because they pretty much won't even do it. They're like, you realize how much work this is and you've got to book it in advance and things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, get to try it at someone's house or try going on a Thursday. That's the way to go. I mean, we've had this dish uh, in different places around the world because it's quite popular. Uh, the exact Madrid version we didn't get to try because we were only there for a few days. I know, it was very brief. And normally we'd only talk about dishes on the shows that we've definitely tasted ourselves because we have tasted very similar versions of this in other locations. I'm like, okay, we're going to do it because this is actually one of the more interesting stories of food from Madrid. I looked around at some of the other dishes and I'm like, nah, we've got to talk about Casido. It really has a bit more of a story, which is what I'm getting onto next, by the way. Okay. Yeah, so I'm like, all right. All right, we'll talk about it because we know the basic flavor profile because it's very similar with the other versions of these dishes around the world in Latin countries, etc. Yeah. So, yeah. The history of cocido madrileño. So, although the ancient history of boiling meat and vegetables together is obviously something we can't just go, oh, it was then. (laughs) 5 BC, they they first boiled the meat together with the vegetables. Can't do that. So, the distinct version that is cocido madrileño, that does appear to have a definite origin date around the 15th century. So not that definite, but within like a space of 100 years. Yeah. It was probably, and well, almost certainly according to most experts, yeah, it was probably adapted from a dish that was made by the Sephardi Jewish community. And that dish was called Adafina, which in turn is a local regional variant in Spain of another much more traditional Jewish dish called Colent which has, it was first documented in 1180 AD. They've been making this specific dish. Wow. So yeah, like a thousand years old almost. So maybe let's start there and then we can work on to how that became the Cocido in Madrid. So the dish was almost certainly being made before 1180 AD. That just happens to be the first time it was documented. And the cooking style was specifically designed. Good on them for writing, you know, something down in, you know. 1180. 1180. The Middle Ages weren't as good at writing stuff down as they had been the Romans and uh, the Renaissance onwards, but they did a bit of writing. Yeah. It did happen. So, yeah, this went down, they put it down, and they went, yeah, this is a dish. And the dish was designed specifically as a cooking style that could conform with Jewish laws that prohibit cooking or lighting a fire on the Sabbath. Ah, yes, we learn about this in Budapest, actually. Yeah, in Budapest. So there's also some dishes in Budapest that are like beans with meats that are slow cooked overnight. Yeah. Pretty sure it's all rooted out of the same cooking tradition. So originally meat, vegetable and beans rather than chickpeas would have been set cooking on a Friday night, late on a Friday night, as late as they could before the Sabbath. And then by the time they had finished doing their morning service, On Saturday, when they got home around midday, they could then have this dish that was sitting in the embers, still hot, hearty, lots of meat and stuff that they just couldn't otherwise have had on the Sabbath. And so that's that's a clever little little trick. The Jewish laws, as well as ways to cook without breaking them, 
would have been something that had been passed between Jewish communities throughout Europe. Yeah. So that wouldn't have just been like, oh, it, it happened in this one place. So Spanish Sephardic Jews, they originated in the Iberian Peninsula and they took on that name in the second century AD to become Sephardic. I don't really know exactly why they wanted to have that exact name, but it shouldn't be confused with there's another group of Sephardic Jews in the Middle East. Oh. So it's like, okay, this is getting a little confusing now. I'm like, these Sephardic Jews put loads of different things in their dish. It's like, oh, those are the ones from the Middle East. Different ones. Different dish. So though the dish colon may be the oldest variety, the Adafina, which I mentioned the name before, is the one that was made in Spain. And it's a lot closer to this modern casino that's in Madrid. Because the Adafina was made with chickpeas, whereas the colon was made with beans. Yeah. So it really just comes down to what they had on offer locally. Which obviously makes sense. Yeah, it's like, this is what's in abundance, so we're going to throw that in the pot. Which legumes do we have? Uh, We've got chickpeas. All right, let's do chickpeas. But, of course, the original dish was Jewish, so it didn't have any pork in it. What it did have in it was whole boiled eggs. So that's a bit mm, random. They would, that would not be a dish you would enjoy. I wouldn't personally enjoy that. Apparently, I've they never met it. anyone to hate boiled eggs as much as you do. <laughs> and apparently, uh, they were also using spices like cinnamon, allspice, and ginger in it, which is quite different from the modern one, which is very much about the salty meat flavors. Yeah. So, I mean, this dish would probably have had meat in it, but of course, it wouldn't have been pork. And parts of the Iberian Peninsula were Muslim because it was from North Africa. Mm-hmm. The Moors from North Africa were in charge of that. I mean, although they got kicked out of Madrid in the 11th century, it's still quite likely that uh, the Jews who were living in that area would have continued to use spices. And of course, the whole Spanish, yeah, of course. Whole Spanish community uses lots of different spices as well. And you can still see a lot of Moorish influence in architecture and lots of different things still, even though they were booted out ages ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's from 1478, exactly when this whole Jewish food community thing started to change because the Spanish Inquisition, who no one expected at the time, started running around forcibly converting Jews. It's only later that we started to expect them. (laughs) Around about the 60s. Around about the 1960s, yeah. Like (laughs) In the 15th century, people just weren't expecting them. But they turned up and they were like, if you want to prove that you truly have converted, because lots of Jews... Like converted, but they were like, we're not really converting, but we, we are converting, but we're not really converting. Yeah. You had to start putting pork in your stews. That was one of the tricks. Well, that was like the story that we heard was that in, I think it, it was with the Jews making, that's how they ended up making their own sausages. But obviously it wasn't a pork sausage, but the people in the Spanish Inquisition weren't going around tasting every sausage that was hanging outside of a house. So the way they used to know if it was a Jewish household was all the the Christian people would hang their sausages out to dry on this hook outside of their house and the Jewish people wouldn't hang anything out because they weren't making sausages. And they're like, you're a Jew, you should be a Christian. Like, oh, rah, rah, rah. And so what the Jews did was they just started making their own sausages, but they didn't put pork in it and they'd hang it out and they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, just nothing going on Christian here. here. Christians. Yep. Christians, yeah. Uh, yeah, we talked about this in our Wati in uh, Lisbon episode briefly, I believe. Yep. And yes, they used to make the sausages in North Portugal with chicken uh, instead of pork and hang them out. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, they're making sausages. That checks out. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yay, Spanish Inquisition really on the ball well, there. Oh, you know, you don't want to work too hard, do you? No, they're probably all drunk all the time. Religious people in the 15th century, <laughs> monks and such, just making wine. I, I don't really know much about Spanish Inquisition. They weren't nice people, as far no, as I could tell. No, they were not pleasant to meet. Exactly. So I've heard. No, or to eat meat with, perhaps. Because they were all eating lots of pork, and if you're Jewish, that would not be pleasant. So they all started adding pork to their adafina, their traditional Jewish stew, 
And that's pretty much where Casido started happening. And just over the space of like 100 years, it turned from being this traditional Jewish dish into everyone had forcibly, forcibly been converted into Christians and put pork in their stew, and now it's Casido. There you go. It's, it's, yeah, it's that simple, really. Yeah. But um, pretty crazy. And so, Casido, the word itself literally means, when translated into English, a cooked thing. Something that has been cooked. <laughs> so, it's just cooked. It basically means cooked. It's like the most basic way of cooking something. Yeah. And they couldn't even be bothered giving it a fancy name. They're just like, yeah. eh, leftovers. What's going to do? And so, yeah, it seems like as people became more affluent rather than just maybe adding a bit of pork, they started adding like lots and lots of meat to the point where it's possible like now you get versions that have eight or nine different types of meat in a dish. And that is crazy. I don't think I've really heard of a dish that incorporates that many different types of pork. No. It's pretty crazy. I mean, not even just pork, though. That could also be like pork, beef, and chicken. Well, yeah, that veal, too. That too. And bacon, which is pork, but it's, you know, it's different. Different it's pork. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, lots of different types of pork. And, yeah, this dish spread all around Spain from there, although I reckon it probably happened sort of semi-simultaneously because everyone was facing the same problem of the Spanish yeah. Inquisition. So, all of these people, Jew- Jewish people making that dish, other people started converting that at exactly the same time, and it caught on. And people who weren't Jewish were like, ah, this is pretty tasty stuff, actually. All right. Going to go for this. Um, yeah, so in Madrid, specifically, as I said right at the start, chickpeas, essential. Uh, in other parts of Spain and Portugal, they might still use different types of bean, like white beans and things like that. So, yeah. Pick a bean, any bean. Throw it in a pot. Exactly. But if you want the traditional Madrid casido, it's got to have chickpeas. Otherwise, you've got the wrong dish. Yeah. <laughs> All right, on to dish number two. And this is something we have tried so many times, so many places, not just in Spain, but also in Latin America as well. The uh, tortilla de patatas or tortilla espanol, the Spanish omelets. Yes. Oh, it's a classic. Which looks nothing like an omelet, really. It's just like a big potato frisbee. I would describe it as a deep dish omelet made with lots of potatoes in the middle. Yeah, a couple of inches thick, but not always. Sometimes it's a bit thinner than that. Sometimes it just depends on the person who's making it. But, I mean, the amount of variety you get with this dish from, like, really dense, fully firm, cold slices you get in cafes where I'm like, eh, I'm not the biggest fan of this. But then you've got, like, the sort of hot and runny inside one that's just been freshly made in, in a restaurant. Like, okay, well, that's getting better. See, I haven't had a runny one until we got to Madrid, and it totally made mm, the difference. I'd yeah. only ever really had, like, the... Firm ca- ones. Yeah, the firm cafe styles. And I was like, yeah, it's all right. I don't know why people rave on about these. But when I had the runny one that was like warmer and it was just, I don't know, the flavors all sort of came out a little bit more. And I don't know, I'm a runny egg kind of girl anyway. And you yeah. picked the peas out of it? I did. I picked every last one. <laughs> no peas. Ew, they're the worst. And I know there's a lot of people listening that are like, yeah, Meg, <laughs> down to the peas. No more peas. Like four people. Hashtag well, Megzi's pee haters. <laughs> They're the worst. No. So, yeah, the, the runny variety, also very good. But I, had, I was very lucky to have a super luxurious version that was almost like a souffle, which actually I got in Mallorca, not in Madrid. But the version we had in Madrid was excellent as well. Yeah, it's like a souffle. It puffed right up. Like it had like the crust had started to go firm on the outside. But as soon as you cut it open, it was just like, gooey on the inside and so much really high quality olive oil that's what makes a difference it does make a difference yeah because yeah if it's done right the thinly sliced potatoes should be baked 
literally drowned in olive oil. It's pretty much confit potatoes. They put them in the pan in the oven with like an inch of olive oil. So the entire thing is just coated and covered. And they just let them sit there and bubble away in the I mean, oven. this doesn't surprise me, let's be honest. So much oil. I'm like, isn't Spanish omelette supposed to be like a healthy like snack dish? And like, no, no, it's just soaked in olive oil, liters of it. <laughs> Not that olive oil isn't healthy, but I'm sure there's a few calories going on there. So yeah, these potatoes that have been confit in olive oil for quite a while to make them just soft and wonderful and a few on top go crispy, the ones that are just sticking out of the oil go crispy, mm. you throw them in the middle and then you combine that with the raw egg, you basically pour over what would be your whisked egg over the potatoes and then, well yeah, some people cook it in a pan, some people cook it in an oven, the one that I had that was my favourite where it was like a souffle was cooked in the oven. Uh, that was amazing. But uh, the smaller ones that are thinner are probably cooked in a pan and I saw this thing like apparently there's, yeah, there's all these chats about these techniques of how you flip your Spanish omelette because it's so thick and if you break it, it like it ruins then the entire it, dish. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I think there was even like omelette flipping machines and tools specifically for flipping Spanish omelettes. Well, like, it's a popular dish. Well, they take it very seriously. People are making this at home. Restaurants are making it everywhere. It's like one of the iconic dishes of Spain. Yeah, the dish has so many different forms and it's not surprising because it's such a simple dish that its historical origin is a little bit on the mysterious side. Well, once again, it's like, oh, someone thought to put eggs with potato. Yeah. la di da like, Yeah, come on. All right, so I really dug deep into this. This one I put way too much time into because I found like a paper trail and then it sort of started going cold. And oh my God, so much ridiculous time wasting looking at this. But I have some conclusions. So, you know, it's a good start. Firstly, the obvious stuff. What we do know is that potatoes made it to Spain around about 1570. So there's no way that the dish existed in Spain before then. Because they had not been to the Americas. No potatoes. Well, they, they had been to the Americas by 1570, obviously, but there was no potatoes in Spain. They hadn't brought them back. Yeah. And they actually, because Peru is where potatoes originally come from, uh, they had sweet potatoes. They came from the Caribbean, but the non-sweet potatoes, which is used for this dish, that's from Peru and that region, other countries around Peru. And they hadn't got there until a bit later. And then by the time they realized it was a food that was worth eating, 1570. I know. It's like, how do you... I mean, other than the, the Peruvians showing you how to use it, like if you just... Like someone gave you a potato. You'd be like, what? What do I do with this? You bite it and it... Well, there's this joke... The, the English were trying to smoke it when they first got it. Oh, really? That was like the first thing. They were like, what is this? What is it for? And they tried to smoke the potato. <laughs> I think that might be more of like an urban myth, but not an urban myth, like a Renaissance myth. Yeah. But uh, yeah, apparently, I don't know. I haven't researched that to make sure if it's true or not. But yeah, there's like a joke about that. The very first reference to a potato being e eaten in Spain as food rather than as a cigarette I don't know if the Spanish did that, if they were as stupid as the English on this one. But uh, that was in Seville at a hospital in 1573. So apparently someone at the hospital noted down they were feeding the patients potatoes. All right. I, just a random thing they noted down. But um, the first ever written reference to Spanish omelette seems to be considered very, it seems to be contested very strongly by a lot of different online sources. And these sources mainly don't seem to have very accurate original sources to actually back up what they're saying. Yep. It's a lot of internet people just going, it was then because of this. And like, how do you know? Wiki told me. Wiki told me. I've copied and pasted this from 17 other articles. So the most common story on the internet dates back to it being 1817, when an anonymous letter was sent to the court of the region of Navarre 
to the capital city of Pamplona, which is where the running of the bulls goes on. I think they just did that recently. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a guy it's got, a, I think a, a guy thing. got gorged. Yeah. Gored. Yeah. What is it? Gorged? Gorged. gorged. It is gorged. I think it's gorged. I think he stopped to take a selfie. And he didn't realise that things in the rearview mirror can seem closer than they appear. (laughs) (laughs) And he got in trouble. Yeah, people in selfies in dangerous situations is a little crazy that this goes on. But uh, too many people dead from selfies. Quite, Quite scary. So this letter, it was complaining that the farmers in the rural areas around Pamplona, they had so little food that they were surviving just from the tortilla made with egg and potatoes. And that's it. And that's pretty much what the letter was. That's the source. Where this letter is now, how people have decided that this is a real letter and because it was from an anonymous person, uh, I mean, I guess the paper could have been aged. No one actually explains why we should believe this is a genuine source, some anonymous letter sent yeah. in 1817. So now after that, there's another story. Yes, this is after. So if we believe the first one, this definitely isn't the first reference if 1817 is true. But this later story suggested that the dish was invented by General Tomás De Zuma La Carrego. Very hard to pronounce his name. Uh, And this was during the 1835 siege of Bilbao, which is a city on the north coast of Spain. It's actually not that far from Pamplona, relatively speaking. He created this dish as a way to get fast and nutritious food to his troops. But this story is apparently just a legend. Where did they get an oven from? Well, you don't know. You can cook it in a pan. You can cook it in a pan over over a barbecue. Yeah, over a. Okay. It's open fire. You don't have to cook it in an oven at all. In fact, I, th- I think most people don't cook it in an oven. It's just the best one I ever had oh, yeah. was cooked in an oven. So you can do it that way and people well, do would, do it that yeah, way. Yeah, so they would have had like cast iron pans. And you can just imagine them like sitting around yeah. cooking it up. But it's totally like just a legend. There doesn't seem to be any proof of this, but everyone's just passed it around going like, oh yeah, he invented it. But fresh produce like eggs in war times is usually quite rare. Yeah, but if you're sieging someone else, then you pillage oh, then you're the doing countryside yeah, and yeah. you're just like, what have the local farms got? There was another story that was like, oh, well, the general didn't invent the dish. What he did was he went to the local farms and was like, what food can I feed the troops? And some old lady in a farmhouse showed him how to make an omelette. She was from Pamplona. Yeah, and it's like, actually, she invented the dish <laughs> yeah. all this time. It's an old lady in a farmhouse. Yeah, who knows? But, of course, yeah, an anonymous note and a legend. Not a lot of solid evidence on all of that. So, next up, the authors of the 2008 book, Patata en España, yeah. The Potato in Spain, mm claims to have found some new documentation that shows the tortilla de patata was invented in Villanueva de la Serena in the state of Barajos, which is much further in the south. And they have an exact date that this document was written on February 27th, 1798 by two landowners. So they would have um, had enough education to write. So they actually wrote the note themselves, or one of them did. They were Joseph de Tena Godoy, or Godoy and the Marquis of of Roblero, and they invented it in order to, to sort out a bit of a famine that was going on. They needed something really cheap because all of their people were starving at the time or something. Okay, so a similar story to the first of yeah, anonymous like note. Hungry, have- yeah, it's like people are hungry, what have we got? Well, at least potatoes grow and eggs are always around because, you know, chickens will eat anything yeah. off the ground, so at least the eggs are always coming. Apparently, they first tried to make some sort of potato bread. They actually documented this, and that didn't really work that well. So they got the local women of the town to help them out, and that's where they mixed egg with the potato instead of just making a potato bread. And so the tortilla espanol was born. Yep. Allegedly. 
Once again, I can't find any copies of the original document, that document that they wrote that this book is talking about. But I can say that unlike all of the internet rumors, the authors of that book, they actually also were published in a scientific journal called Seminario de Agricultura y Artes. So it's an actual journal in Spain, which means it should have been checked out by other people to see if their documentation was like reliable. Yeah. Because that's normally how journals work. I can't find the original journal because they don't have a lot of copies online because it's from like 15 years ago or something. But the actual journal definitely exists yeah. and they have a specific reference to the exact issue they were in. I'm assuming it's probably accurate because unlike, unlike all the other stories, which are just like, sure, there was a letter from an anonymous person. This is like dates, names, published in a journal, definite document that they claim to have and someone must have checked that they have for them to get published in a journal. So... That's sounding, that's sounding pretty good. 1798. Yeah, Could have been made claim. before, but at the very least, it's the first time it's been documented. But then I found another article in the Spruce Eats, which I, I use their articles a bit to look at because the Spruce Eats seems to generally do a bit of research yeah, when they put their stuff they're together. they're pretty good articles. They got they're going, relatively uh, good. Yeah, they don't tend to just do a cookie cutter cut and paste. But unfortunately, this article said actually... There's evidence from the late 1500s where the head chef of King Philip III and then after that King Philip IV, so he was chefing for a while, he actually created the first Spanish omelette and he wrote about it in his notebooks and those notebooks have been recovered and it details the recipe and the directions and so he definitely invented it in the late 1500s. So it's like, damn, that's like 200 years earlier. Yeah, but that's pretty much like the king, and I mean, it doesn't. it could make sense, it's like, the king naturally gets first pick of whatever's come from the, you know, from the Americas and whatnot. Happens to be some potatoes, and he goes to the chef, "Oi, what are you going to do with this?" What do you, yeah, and Name he's like, some food. "Yeah." But the problem was, Spruce Eats. What they reference is a book, and the book I can't. It's like only in hardback copy. It's like twenty years old. Yeah, I can't get in this book. So there's no reference referencing where Culinarium. This book's called Culinarium. There's no reference saying where they got this reference from. Like, where did you find this notebook? What is this notebook? Who told you that there's a notebook? So once again, I'm like, ugh, trail's dead. I can't verify that they were right because books get stuff wrong all the time. Yeah. Happens all the time. But if it was written in a meme, then it would be true. Memes are true. Books are not always true. That's true. Is that not? Did you find any memes about the origin of Apparently, memers aren't as excited about food history. Mm. That's not a meme topic, All right. unlike celebrity stupidity and I guess and I things. think the, what we've realized here is that we'll never know. This is not true because I decided, mm. I told you I went down a complete hole <laughs> on this one. I decided I was not going to take no for an answer. For a reference to be that much older than the most recent sort of definite reference, someone has to have verified this. Someone else has to have written about it. Why is it that the Spruce Eats and this one book that they read are the only two sources I could find online that are talking about something that happened 200 years before everyone else is saying it happened? So there's got to be something going on. So I found out the name of the chef who was the chef because Spruce Eats didn't even put the name of the chef in. So I had to go and find out at that time in those years who, who was, was the chef. For the king? So Francisco Martinez Montino is almost certainly the chef uh, because... He actually did publish a cookbook in 1611, and he, that was definitely like the time around where those kings were in charge, yeah. and he was the head chef to the king, and he published the cookbook as the head chef to the king. has over 200 recipes in it. And not this one. Uh, yeah, you've ruined a story, but yeah, no. <laughs> no, this, this recipe is not in it. <laughs> 200 
200 recipes. It's the one he leaves out. This is, and this is exactly why I'm like, are you sure that this guy made this recipe? Okay, so the, the original scanned copy of this, like they've actually scanned the old, old text. It's all handwritten. Oh, wow. And you can like just make, I mean, I read a bit of Spanish enough to read it. And it's a bit of a translation thing that works on Google. So you can translate bits, try and figure it out as well. Yeah, a really awesome resource that I'm probably going to use for any more sort of Spanish food history. Because 1611 is pretty old. Mm. And 200 recipes. and quite a lot of them in there going like, oh, yeah, that's a classic Spanish recipe. Oh, yeah. 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 So he has tortilla. He has... Uh, Tortilla in the French style, French omelette. He has tortilla, the white tortilla. I don't know what that is, but it's just a bit like an omelette. He has cheese omelette. He's got all of these omelettes, nothing with potato in it. In fact, in the whole book, there's like one. I didn't read the whole book, but I did some searches. It does, it's partially scannable. Word potato only comes up in the book once. I did feel it was a little too soon for them to be just be rolling out with the potato. But I mean, they're already cooking it up for patients in Seville in 1573. Yeah, but that's not the king. No, the king's going to be like, come on, dude. I want some better food than this. This is, this is food for, for my servants. But I don't know. But as I said before, like it came over from the America. So it's like special food. I mean, now we look at it, we're like, yeah, it's a potato. Back then it's like, ooh, this has come from a foreign land. My, my liege. Liege? Is it liege? Yes, my liege. My liege. I don't come from a land of royalty. I know I'm Australian and we kind of are under the, you know, the queen and whatnot, but I didn't really grow up with all that royalty stuff. So anyway, it's not in this cookbook, but the Spruce Eats suggest that it was in the chef's personal notebook and that it would have been written a few years before this, the publication of the cookbook because they're saying it was late. 1500s, like 1598 or something, whereas this cookbook came out in 1611. So I'm like, this dish was just not popular enough. He wrote 200 plus recipes. But not this one. And so many omelette recipes. Like literally, like this omelette has this, this omelette has cheese added, and like that's an entire different recipe. It's like that detailed. This dude went overboard on describing basic dishes. Maybe it's amazing. It was too plain. Maybe he considered it too vanilla. I don't know, but whatever happened, apparently there's some extra special notebook that no other internet reference has caught on to, mm. and there's one book that talks about it, and books written after. Because like, this Culinarian book was written in, uh, it was first published in the 90s, and then the second edition and final edition, I don't think there's been one since, was 2004. Four years after that is when the uh, Patata en España guys did their book following their journal paper on the same topic. So I'm like, so they didn't bother to research any of this. Like, only one book has this reference, and for some reason, the Spruce Eats has mentioned it. I'm super dubious. If the notebook is proven to exist, then it sounds like late 1500s, the Spanish omelette has been around for a very long time. So still, I don't know, 200 years difference in his claim, but I can't verify it. And go, I spent like an hour and a half, two hours going through trying to translate this cookbook, going through the whole table of contents. It's very well organized. For 1611, every single recipe is listed out at the start. And then Google have managed to make it so that you can click on the table of contents to go straight to the page where that recipe is discussed. So I looked at all the different omelets and I was like, none of these have got potatoes in them. Like, ah! <laughs> so much time wasted on this. But there you go. It's all a bit iffy. I think at the moment we've got to say 1798 is where it's at. All right. That's the first documented invention, but the dish almost certainly was going on a little bit before that. So there we go. Insane. The Spanish omelette, I was like, oh, it'll be, it'll be just fluff, won't it? It'll be just like, yeah, someone made it. We don't know who. 
But actually, everyone wants to claim that it was made by them and all of these crazy stories and, yeah, mental. What are you going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to talk about mushrooms instead. Because mushrooms are awesome. So, yeah, we took this food and drink tour with Devour Madrid. We got to try loads of different tapas dishes. So, I mean, we haven't really talked about tapas. I mean, the tortilla is tapas. It's part of tapas. You can totally get that as a tapas dish in pretty much any cafe restaurant in Madrid. But yeah, we did this tapas tour. So we had lots of different things that we're not going to talk about specifically today, like croquetas, which is the, the croquettes, and gambas el ajillo, which is the prawns with garlic. Prawn and garlic. It's like sizzling. Flash fried in lots of olive oil because they love the olive oil. It's just once again, drowned in it. It's, um, it. it's a lot of little places that you go to that just do like one specific thing. And it's like, you go to this place to get this dish because that's all they make. Uh, so it's a lot of that going on, a bit of a roaming tour of going, you go here to get this because it's yeah. awesome. We even found out about the nuns making cookies. We didn't get to try the nun cookies, but I was very intrigued by the nun cookies. If you buy the nun cookies, you're not allowed to see the nuns. No. You put your order through a little like little hole and they And there's a lazy your, Susan. Yeah, like a lazy Susan type of thing. So it spins around with your order and then you get your cookies. Yeah. You're not allowed to see them, but they make cookies. Wish we got to try that. Um, yeah. So we tried loads of different things. Uh, also, we tried vermouth, which has lots of origin story. The one in Spain is very different from the more famous stuff you'll know from Italy, like Cinsano Bianco and Martini. Those sorts of vermouths mm-hmm. are very famous. Made for the aperitivo. Yeah, you can have them for your aperitivo. Uh, but there's a pretty long story to the history of vermouth. So all I'm going to say here is that the Spanish ones are very much more artisanal focused. It's like bars actually will make their own blend, that sort of thing, rather than it just coming out of a bottle that's been mass produced. So, I mean, maybe they do that in Italy. I don't know. I haven't done full research on that. But obviously the famous brands are just out of a bottle. Yeah. So, yeah, full episode on vermouth is coming soon. Now, there was a few culturally significant stops on the tour. Uh, well, quite a lot, really, because they're trying to take us to cool places. But there was one that definitely really caught the attention, uh, not just of my eyes, but also of my taste buds, um, but also because of the history of the place. And that was Maison del Champignon. You remember this place? I very much remember, you remember this place. You remember eating some mushrooms? It was like my favorite stop on the... And the funny thing is, we'd walked past this place a few times and we just hadn't really paid attention to it because it isn't a bit of a touristy kind of busy Very area. area and so we just had just ignored it hadn't paid any attention to this place and then when she took us in there and we tried these mushrooms it was just delicious yeah so the spanish word maison is likely derived from the french maison meaning house house of mushrooms but also related i mean they're all related to the original Latin word mansio, like as in mansion, root for mansion. Yep. But it also meant a whole bunch of different things. It didn't just mean mansion. It can also mean something to do with travel, um, like a trip or a roadhouse sort of thing. Apparently, there's like, yeah, if you put it into translate, there's like 17 different things it could mean. I think they're probably going for house of mushrooms. Uh, th- well, no, actually, see, a little bit more research, and it's not house of mushrooms. Oh. Uh, in Spanish, specifically in a hospitality industry context, meson means an inn. So, like somewhere where you have a bar, restaurant, but there's also guest rooms. That's the traditional meaning. Oh, so well, they could have. I mean, it was like in the the wall in the old like walls of the city is where this was situated, right? Well, traditionally, it would have meant they would have rooms, but that's not the full story here. So, the Maison de Champ- del Champignon should be 
like the inn of the mushrooms. And as we said, it's located within the exterior walls. It's like in this wall around um, the old city. Well, it's actually around Plaza Mayor. There was a bigger wall that existed around the old city of Madrid. This is like a more central wall that goes around the main city square that was built in the 16th century as a marketplace. Uh, Today, the square is full of different restaurants, but on the outside, yeah, you've got this wall, and that's also had all these restaurants built in with like the arches. So you go into the restaurant, it's just these bare stone walls above you and these bare stone arches and all these murals on the wall of mushrooms, specifically in this place, like old tiles. But what actually happened was... In the 1960s, when the European tourism boom actually first started kicking off, so like people actually started to go on vacation, which hadn't really been a massive thing before that. Certainly not. People were heading to Greece, people were heading to Spain, to Portugal. You know, this was all happening. They're like, let's go and get some time in the sun. You know, so this was going on. And what happened was all of these spaces around the city walls, they all got turned into restaurants and taverns because it was right in the downtown. So it made sense. That's an ideal location to set up your restaurant. So Maison del Champignon opened in 1964. It was part of this original Madrid tourist boom. So although it's not really ancient, it's definitely become part of the modern traditions of the cities from the last hundred years. And um, I think 64 till now is pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. I got to give it to them. Um, So these new inner city type Maisons, which have actually popped up around other parts of Spain as well, uh, they don't normally feature the accommodation. They're sort of just, they're running off the tradition, but they don't actually have rooms. Yeah. But they are following the same sort of food and wine and a limited sort of menu, but they they have an expertise in a specific few dishes that people go there for because they're like, yes, I want to have that dish, so I'm going there. But good to note that some of the ones around those walls near Plaza Mayor have been bought out and turned into generic tourist restaurants with a like menu that's We've got club sandwich and yeah. burger chips. This is why we ignored a lot of them, but I'm really glad that they took us there on the tour because I loved the mushrooms. It was, yeah, they were just like fried with loads of oil and you couldn't- They're, they're grilled on a hot plate, like with all of the butter inside them. Yeah. And olive oil, I think maybe as well. I think it was a mixture of both. Yeah. So they sit cooking slowly. So they just like start to, all the heat goes through the mushroom and makes it all soft and gooey and wonderful inside. And then the thing with these mushrooms is you can't eat it with your hands. You're given no cutlery. What the mushrooms do is they have two cocktail sticks in them and there's a certain way of you, that you have to eat it and get it into your mouth without spilling any of the, the liquid of the like, there's like mushroom, butter, oil. It's yeah, all a whole. mushroom juices, all the oil. It's all kind of chorizo like, oil. Yeah, as well because there's chorizo in them. That's what really makes them pop. I and reckon. so you need to get it in your mouth without spilling it everywhere, and you also need to try and get it in your mouth and not burn your face off. You do have to wait a couple of minutes after it arrives to actually eat it, which is difficult because they look great. Uh, yeah, there's a tasty photo of them on the article associated with this podcast, foodfuntravel.com/slash/madrid/podcast. They're super tasty. One of my favorite bites in Madrid the whole time we were there. Absolutely. Yeah. And you get a little plate of those and you just can't stop eating them. I had like five or something. Yeah. I took the last one. Yeah. Someone has to. No regrets. No regrets about eating mushrooms. That's for sure. Unless they're the wrong type of mushrooms. Then you could have some regrets. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other episode. (laughs) Yep. That's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. Not on this one. All right. So yeah. uh, Maison de la Champignon. Definitely a place to check out. Obviously. 
Also check out Devour Madrid's food tour because they do go to a lot of really cool stops. Yeah, the one we did was food and history. So it was a little bit of both to give you a bit of an insight to the city and also know about the traditions of the food there as well. But yeah, the tapas culture does make it nice and easy to have lots of little bites as you're wandering around, which is great. And there was quite a few drinks. There was vermouth, there was tinto verano, and Mm -hmm. there was uh, some special homemade sweet wine that we had as well. Anyway, I'm not going to spoil all of the tour. I'm just saying there's some good stuff going on. So look it up. All right. Finally today, let's talk about another amazing restaurant experience. So like, yeah, what to eat in Madrid. We've talked about some traditional foods and some semi-traditional or modern traditional foods. Now I'm going to be talking about like the latest stuff to eat. Because we went for some flamenco dinner theater. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Now, usually going to a dinner and a show is not something that we would usually do. Because I'm going to be completely honest, quite often the food is not up to scratch. It's like they're just trying to get it out to all the people watching the show and it's not really a thing. But when I saw Corral de la Moria online and I looked at their menu and the chef that they have working there. They are working on some proper gourmet food. It's actually like, you know, they're trying to give this experience of like where the show and the food is equal entertainment. Yeah. I mean, their concept is haute cuisine meets traditional flamenco. This place is super, super popular. It's been featured in lots of big international publications. They've won loads of awards. And it is because the food's amazing and the flamenco is very authentic. They get different performers through all the time. They always maintain a standard. It's not like they're not letting things slip. They always want to be at the top of their game all the time. Uh, So let's have a little listen to the flamenco and then we can talk about the food. So, yeah, the show was super powerful, like, in terms of the emotional content and just the way the dancers move, like, super professional guys, amazing. Well, girls and guys. Yes. And the main thing I have to say going in, I always thought flamenco was just the dancing. I didn't realize it also included the ensemble as well. So, the guitarist and the vocalists and the clapping and uh, everything to do with it. It's the entire ensemble that creates a flamenco experience. It's not just the dancers. Yeah. And they kind of like bounce off each other as well. Like the singers and the dancers in like interact in a way where, I don't know, they kind of like goad on like the dancers like it's, yeah. it's this emotional build up and that's how the dancers get the emotion to to express themselves through dance on stage it seemed like there was quite a lot of spontaneity like there were solo performances that were quite largely like this is my planned performance that i've practiced and then there were bits where all performers came on stage at once where you're like oh they're sort of they're riffing off each other like yeah they're just figuring stuff out and they're doing it amazingly well and just creating new things and doing new things. And it, yeah, really, really good. But let's talk a little bit about the chef. Chef David Garcia gained a Michelin star as head chef at restaurant Albora in Madrid in 2014. And he wasn't happy with that. That wasn't enough. It's like, okay. it's like apparently Michelin star is not enough. So he wanted to take it to the next level. 
and combine not just the emotion of food, but the emotion of the flamenco together to create like the most unbeatably emotive experience of having all of those sensations happening to you at once. There you go. That's exactly what I said it was. Yeah. That is what I, it is. I didn't even know that that's what his concept was. So there we go. That's He's it. achieved it. He did it. You didn't even realize, but that's nice what he was tip, after. Tick to you, chef. But yeah, I mean, flamenco, if you haven't seen live flamenco, which is obviously something you've got to do if you go to Spain, uh, it really does exude that raw passion in a way that other dance forms don't quite do it. I mean, it's, it's raw. That's what I mean. It's raw. It's not, it's, not as, it's not as structured necessarily. It really is just like, this is a feeling. I'm transmitting a feeling right now. Flamenco is respectably sensual. Then they combine this incredible food with this really powerful dance experience. You're like, yep. That works. Amazing. So, yeah, the food at Corral de la Moria is focused on organic ingredients, of course. Not surprisingly, the Michelin star chef is going for the best possible taste. But let's talk about a couple of the dishes, I think, while we're here, because as we said, what to eat in Madrid? These are two things that you definitely have to eat in Madrid. If you can get to this dinner theater, book a table well in advance because it gets real busy. But the scallop carpaccio with tomato tartare, dates, and cold garlic served with an almond and coconut milk soup which you pour over the top at the table to finish the dish. This was just a wow. <laughs> this is one of the best dishes I've eaten in the last couple of years. You do love a good scallop. I really do. But I mean, the scallops are really subtle in how they worked within the dish. And the tomato just brought all the flavors together, just gave it a little bit of punch. And I feel this dish reflects the flamenco quite perfectly, respectably sensual. Mm-hmm. It was like, it really gets your emotions going, but in a very sophisticated way. So, yeah, sophisticated and passionate. Yeah, the tomato really pops. Uh, Definitely my number one dish of the night and one of my number one dishes for 2019, for sure. So far. So far? You've still got some time to go, but no, that was uh, an amazing dish. Yeah. Uh, The other standout dish for me specifically was the pigeon cooked in two ways with a soft buckwheat risotto on the side. Confit pigeon leg along with a seared but rare pigeon breast. Like the pigeon breast was so delicate and like completely pink all the way through the middle. Yet I don't even know how they cook it that well. Yeah. Like, I mean, pigeons are good meat. I like pigeon anyway, but to have got the breast that succulent and soft when it's so rare, it must have been a good pigeon. Well, of course. Yeah. He he was being like that one. Well, that one. Going out to the pigeon farm. And I actually, I really loved the accompaniment of the buckwheat risotto with it as well. I think the whole dish came together really beautifully and uh, it was like two dishes on one plate because you had the pigeon in two different ways. Yeah, so two different flavor profiles and textures with the meat and then the buckwheat risotto, a completely different texture as well. Yeah. But you could combine that with both types of the meat. Uh, Yeah, wonderfully done, wonderfully done. Uh, Photos of these dishes, because they are also very pretty to look at, uh, are at our full article, foodfuntravel.com slash Madrid podcast. You can also find out how to get on the experience and go and do the flamenco experience for yourself as well. Um, there was one other dish that I want to mention. I didn't photograph it because it just looks like splodge. It, it's hard. It looks like a big sponge. A big, spongy, bready, like puffed up bread sponge. And it's also something that you had to eat quite quickly because, I mean, as Tom's going to explain how they make it, but it starts like disintegrating as soon as it's made. As soon much. as it's out of the kitchen, yeah, it will start shrinking on the plate. So what they do, and I don't know how many other people do this. I don't know if they create the concept or if uh, it's being recycled from somewhere else, but it was awesome. They actually make this walnut paste, delicious walnut paste, and they 
put it in a vacuum so that all of the air is sucked out. And because when you put something in a vacuum, it expands. That's like if you basically you're putting it in space, right? Yeah. It's like throwing walnut paste into space and it will just start expanding outwards because there's no gravity to hold it together and there's no pressure to hold it together once it's in the vacuum of space. So yeah, it creates this sort of like sponge texture, holy crazy bread that's expanded, like bread dough that's got just these bubbles inside of it everywhere. But what they do is they then throw it in the freezer, still in its state of being in a vacuum. And then so it freezes solid into this crazy, like latticey, spongy shape. It's so crazy. Who comes up with this stuff? I so, don't know. So yeah, they literally they pull it out of the deep freeze. They cut a block off. And they get it on the plate and they get it out to you as quickly as possible because as soon as it starts to heat up, it just shrinks back to being this paste. So such a crazy concept, but it's delicious. It was wonderful. Really awesome dessert. Love it. So yeah, there's three contemporary Spanish dishes that you must try in Madrid. A little bit different from our uh, usual episodes of just talking about traditional food, but this was such a great food experience that we really thought is essential. We've got to talk about that. Yeah, Can't absolutely that wonderful. I think the, the show was great. The food was great and the service was really great as well. I, I really enjoyed going to that dinner theatre. Yeah. So we've talked about six different dishes today, but on our full article at foodfuntravel.com slash Madrid podcast, there's about 24 dishes on that one. So we did get to try lots of little bites, plus a few dishes like the cocido that we didn't get to try. But I'm like, well, we're going to put them on the on the list anyway, because of course, these are really essential dishes. I mentioned at the top of the episode that Iberico ham the best ham of the entire region. Everyone would agree. Got to have the ham. We're not going to talk about it because we're going to do another episode. Also, an essential dessert, churros. Everyone knows churros. Of course. But were they invented in Portugal or Spain or even Latin America? I mean, uh, uh, well, we're going to talk about that in another episode because that's also a big story. Spanish food's a big story in general. Spanish food has affected so much of the planet. It's crazy. The history of vermouth, we mentioned, also going to talk about that. And the history of tapas. We've got so many things to talk about. So much, just all revolving around Spain. It's cray-cray. Yeah. So, a final announcement in this episode. We're going to be dropping the podcast back to one episode every two weeks rather than weekly. We do actually have a lot of other work commitments with our blog and business. And so, each episode actually takes us like 8 to 20 hours in total to research, like produce the episode, record the episode, edit the episode, publish the episode, promote the episode, like at least sort of 20 hours for each one. So it's just getting a bit insane to try and keep up with everything else and doing this. So, so that's we why can we're do, dropping back. Yeah. If we can do bi-weekly, that means we can also do the level of research that we want to do as well, because we're finding we're going, as we said with this episode, we're going down these rabbit holes and trying to yeah. find the answers that we want. So it's not just black and white with the answers for a lot of these dishes. So we want to be able to give it the time to do the proper research and get you guys the right information. Yeah. So that's it. We want to try and maintain some quality. And yeah, we're definitely not quitting anytime soon. This is not happening. But of course, if you follow this podcast, subscribe, leave us five-star reviews, that is all going to help us get closer to a point where we can go back to doing it weekly. We love doing the podcast. We really would like to do more podcasts, but we also have to make money because that's how it works. So if we're not doing huge amounts of stuff with the podcast all the time and making millions of dollars, so we have to keep doing the rest of the work as well. So yeah, the best way you can help us is by recommending the podcast to your friends, subscribing, listening to the episodes. Don't just subscribe and listen to one episode and then forget about us. Like just if a new one pops up, go listen to it. That really makes a difference as well. That's it really. Five-star reviews all around. That's the best way to do it. And don't forget, if you want some more information on what to eat in Madrid, there is a lot more dishes on our foodfuntravel.com slash Madrid podcast. 
Just go to that link and you will find that. At least another 20 dishes that you need to try in Madrid. All right. That's it for another episode. Done and done. Woohoo!